when politically and economically everything seems to be falling apart, and it seems that God has fallen asleep on his throne, when brothers and sisters in Christ are killed, and the freedom to tell others about Christ is threatened, how should we respond? As we open to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 and following with our study leader, Dave Woodson, the response of the first century church in Jerusalem when Peter and John were released from prison gives us the answer. You know, when you see the newscast, I couldn't believe it to see that incredible earthquake that took place in Japan. And you see all those pictures and the tsunami wave that just hits and instantaneously people are just wiped away. I'm also reminded of the Middle East and we've all been looking at Northern Africa and the upheaval that's there. In the midst of all this upheaval and all these disasters that take place, one of the things this morning that we should all realize is the world is shaking. I remember with Mitsu Fujita that led Pearl Harbor, who would ever dream that here today they would be our bosom friend and very much integrated with our economy, and Japan has risen out of terrible devastation. But now the earthquake hits, and we find out that all this technology and all this material prosperity it's shaky. It's fragile. Anybody feel that today? And then throughout Northern Africa, you know, like the political situation, nobody ever figured out what would happen in uh, Tunisia, what would happen in Libya, what would happen in Egypt. It shows you that in the midst of all this world where we think we have so much control, we really don't. But what about our brothers and sisters when all this upheaval takes place? As brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, living in a fragile world, where natural disasters can sweep over us, where there can be incredible opposition to the cause of Christ. For example, an email that I received a couple months ago, it was from a friend of mine that has a ministry where he actually goes into cities and he gathers believers like ourselves and he trains them how to plant churches. And it's been an explosive movement of the spirit. Like in Ethiopia, for example, over 300 churches were founded after my friend trained people in how to help believers to get churches started. But my friend that's in charge of that ministry just sent an email. It's from their representative in Egypt. It says, Dear Prayer Team, as you know, I was in Egypt this last summer. I have information from a second city that I visited called Alminya. And this information came from Tom. Please begin praying. Tom said, I talked to our E3 leader today as a call went through finally. It is sad there. He says that 15 Christians were just killed in a village outside of Alminya, and since there are no police available, no one was willing to even help them. He also said that his family members take turns sleeping a few hours because someone has to be awake at all times to protect their homes. Bank robberies, rape, looting, car theft, and all sorts of other evils are happening routinely now. But listen to this. But he had so much joy. This one of our brothers, after just having members of his believing family that were killed, listen to what he says, that he had so much joy. He reminded me that because of all this, there are more people praying for Egypt now than perhaps ever before in their history. He said that they expect a great harvest in Egypt now because of being covered in prayer. Now, that's an uplifting view of things. So here we are, a brother in a culture that hasn't had a lot of freedom, and that's one of the things that we need to really pray, is that maybe with all the changes that took place, maybe the Lord will open up 
freedom of speech and freedom to be able to share. But I want you to know that whatever happens politically and socially, there's a brother that's seeking to seize the opportunity to share Christ. How do we respond when earthquakes hit and physically all kinds of disasters are taking place? How do we react when there's political and social issues that just seem that the whole world is chaotic and crazy? And what I want you to know this morning as we open up to Acts chapter 4 is that the early church was facing those same kind of upheavals. In fact, when we studied last time together, we had the major apostles, Peter and John, were told, you can no longer proclaim that Jesus is risen from the dead. The major religious group in Jerusalem, the Jewish priests, had brought two of our leading foundational apostles. I share with you the last time we were together, this was totally before there was any Christian church. And one of the things I'm trying to get across to you is I I want you to share not just Christian culture, not just Christian religion. I want you not to be inviting people to become like you in your religious culture. What I want you to be thinking of is much deeper than that. We, like we shared the last time, Peter and John had seen Jesus die on the cross. They didn't understand it. It crushed them. But then on the third day, they saw Jesus alive. That Sunday night, Jesus appeared to them. And they became witnesses to this only person that's ever lived that conquered death. At Pentecost, they were filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist said that the Messiah would be able to give. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and immediately, we've already had two major presentations where Peter stands up and says, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. You need to change your hearts, change your minds about Jesus. You need to trust in him. And they boldly, boldly proclaim Christ. Now, the Sanhedrin says, you can't preach anymore. We want you to stop sharing that Christ died, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and that he died to fulfill Isaiah 53. We want you to stop sharing that he rose again from the dead in fulfillment of Psalm 16, where God promised that his Holy One wouldn't suffer decay. How are the apostles going to respond to that? And what we learned is that when all the authorities on earth say, you can't share the resurrected Christ, what do we do? Like, what are we going to do if people start telling us, you can't share Christ, you can't proclaim his name? Well, we need to be wise as serpents, harmless as a dove, but wise as serpents. We need to not be obnoxious, but we need to be seizing opportunities. And one thing I want you to understand is that no authority on earth can stop or should stop our presentation. One of the things that really concerns me is that in America, we have total freedom to share Christ, for the most part. In the public school system, a lot of you school teachers, because of the government, the separation of church and state, you can't share your personal faith. But don't ever forget, for example, if you're teaching history, there's all kinds of opportunities. And you can go to court for the fact Christianity has strongly influenced. Jesus is one of the most powerful influences in America. And you can go to court and say, listen, if I'm an atheist and agnostic, if I don't share about the power of, the, of people that believe in Jesus within history, I'm a terrible historian. I'm a terrible English teacher. If I don't teach my students the scriptural stories behind Shakespeare, behind Moby Dick, 
Behind Mark Twain, he was a, very much of an agnostic. But you won't understand Mark Twain, who's one of America's greatest literary geniuses. If you don't know Jesus and Christianity and the influence, seize those opportunities. Be wise about it. But don't let somebody put a zipper over your mouth. That's what we're learning in the book of Acts. So what did Peter and John do? They just got arrested. They were just told, you can't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. What do they do? Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says, on the release. So Peter and John just got released from prison. What did they do? The first thing they do is they went back to their own people and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And we're going to look at that prayer in just a minute, but the very first thing I want you to see is that their first response was that they went back to their own people and they unite in prayer to the Lord of creation and the Lord of history. Before we talk about the incredible, wondrous reality that we're serving the Lord of creation and the Lord of history, I want you to see a very important phrase. They went back to their what? Everybody tell me they went back to their... Who are your own people? I want every one of you this morning to think about who are your people. One of the really powerful things that's happening is we're, as Americans, searching for our own people. Every one of you want to be in a group. You want to have a family. One of the reasons why The Office is such a powerful program is that it, The Office is the family. For a lot of you, your relationships are your office friends. A lot of you that might be single, for example, you've moved far away. You were raised in Maryland, and now you moved to Texas and you have just your office. In America today, I want you to be thinking about what is your, my own people? And one of the things that's really breaking down is we are losing any sense of our family. Why? One of our counselors in our church just shared me coming in. I just can't believe it. Believing families are blown apart like crazy. Couples that have been together forever and ever and ever suddenly decide after many years of marriage, I've had it. I found somebody on Facebook, and I liked them, and I remember all those incredibly wondrous things that happened at the prom when I was 18 years of age, and now that I'm 42, I want to go back and become 18 again. Those are really powerful forces, and what you're looking for, you're, you're trying to recapture old memories. You're trying to recapture an idealized youth. It's a big lie, but it's really powerful. And then I work with people that will be deacons in the church, look like really good Christians. Suddenly, they take off, some of them that have been in real religious places where you wear coats and you wear ties, suddenly they're wearing motorcycle jackets. And I have a woman that has tattoos all over her, and she's, she's behind some great big guy on a big Harley. Why do you do that? Because in a motorcycle club, you'll have your own people. My friends that are in motorcycle clubs, they have incredible sense of group. They have incredible sense of oneness. They do things together. They ride together. That's what Satan is attacking among God's people. The Lord meant for you when you were born again into God's family to find the ultimate, eternal, your own people, Jesus' people. You hear what I just said? Your people need to be Jesus' people, wherever you find them. But because you're a human being, you need to realize that Jesus is going to call you to relate to brothers and sisters that you can see. 
that you can talk to. And one of Satan's biggest attacks is going to get you to go away from your own people. Peter and John could come back to their own people. They're going to live the rest of their lives connecting with people that believe Jesus died and rose again. Now, I can think of a ton of bad illustrations, but last night I, I, I got it. One of the cool things about ministering is that you work with really bad problems where people do suddenly decide, I'm going to join a motorcycle club, and I've had it, forget all this stuff, and I'm going to have a different people. But you know, for everyone that does that, Mary and I can point to people that are our own people. They're our people. And 24 years ago, Leo and Adela, Adela's sister Jessie came to our church. She had received Jesus, and she was hungry. She brought her sister Adela. Before I knew it, Leo and Adela were gathering together here. They were raising a young family, especially Gracie, their daughter. And they chose to make this their own people. And that was 24 years ago. So last night, till late last night, listened to mariachi bands and incredible Latino music and all the celebration. And I have lived my life with them. Like I married Gracie and Brian. And now they've got four kids at the table next to us because that was nine years ago. Seven years ago, I helped Adela lead the service as we lost her marvelous grandson, Carlos, in a terrible accident, just crushed us. But I watched Adela break down and cry, but she explained to all of her extended family and all of her grandson's friend, I still have hope today, and she explained how she had led her grandson to a faith in Jesus Christ. And last night, we celebrated with our own people because a whole bunch, there were some of you that are right here this morning, you were there last night because you're Leo and Adela's own people. It was awesome for me last night. I look around the room because I've done happy things with that family. It's very interesting. Leo and Adela is their whole extended family from San Antonio, from Dallas. Everybody's there. and We've done happy things together like weddings. But we've also done some really sad things. But last night we celebrated. Leo and Adela have been married for 50 years. And that's right last night. They celebrated 50 years. So don't feel like all is lost. Leo was, a, was an Hispanic kid being raised in Dallas. And somebody like you shared the gospel with him. And he realized that you're saved by believing in the crucified Jesus. And you're born again. And he believed in the resurrected Christ. And he and Adela came to know Jesus in their early 20s. And they've chosen to live their whole life with you being their own people. And helping their extended physical family to know Jesus. Maybe I'm speaking to some of you. I know the pulls to I'm not happy and I'm not fulfilled and I think I could find the answer out there. Satan wants to use that really powerfully. I feel that. You feel that. Don't give in to the lie. Because the brothers and sisters in Christ that are your own people that believe that Jesus died and rose again, like Peter and John believed, and when they went back to their small, what had now become a much larger group, they're their people. Now, what do God's people do? You say, Dave, when I'm faced with crisis, like, how would you respond if two of our major leaders come back and say, hey, we just got out of prison? 
We just had a big court here, and they told us to shut up. They told us not to share about Christ anymore. What are you going to do? Well, the early church showed us what to do. You want to pray. And the first thing you do is you pray to the one who's in control. Are you afraid this morning? Have you had a lot of fear? Some of you moms, earthquakes take place. Japanese moms sitting in northern Japan were totally safe and suddenly walls of water. We live in that world. I just read to you about a brother in Christ where his body of Christ, a very small minority in Egypt, 15 of their number were just brutally killed. And now their brothers and sisters, the men, everyone had to stay up all the time to try to protect their land. What do you do when the world seems to be chaotic and crazy and destructive? Look what the early church did. They prayed together and they prayed to the sovereign Lord. They said, you made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. So they first of all recognized the Lord is sovereign. And what it means by that is ultimately our heavenly daddy is writing the story. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. One of the things you need to nail down. The Bible speaks from cover to cover that things aren't just by chance, might look like it, not just by probabilities, that ultimately, and this is a big thing to nail down, need to nail down, ultimately, we're here, and the earth is here, and the universe is here, because there's a great personal creator. That's one of the greatest things you need to nail down. So as you're sitting here, you're not alone. There's tremendous chaos. The Bible from starts out, now the earth was empty and voids and covered with powerful, destructive waters. The whole story of the Bible is redemptive, and you need to understand that you can rest, that everything can be taken away from you, but you're going to be okay. Because God, the Lord and Father of our Jesus, is the creator. The second thing to understand is he's the sovereign of history. He didn't just create the universe. But he also is involved with the flow of history. One of the great, great gifts that this book gives to you. From the beginning of time, the Lord of creation has been bringing about redemption on the earth. And as you read the Bible from cover to cover, it's very realistic. It talks about earthquakes that destroy. It talks about persecution like happened in Egypt with our friends. We're going to have, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to have martyrs. But we're going to find out that over and over again they come back. Our Lord is the Lord of history. And as we unite together in prayer, what do we pray about? And what we pray about is that the Lord is expressing his control of history. And they're going to go back and say, we've experienced the worst thing that could ever happen in history. And the argument's going to move from the worst, most terrible thing that could ever happen. The time that you would think things were totally chaotic and totally out of control, and the early church is going to be talking to their heavenly father, that's the creator and the Lord of history, and they're going to be affirming it's all taking place according to your plan. You say, Dave, what's going on? Well, what could be the worst thing that ever happened in human history? If I get hit by an earthquake and I die, and Mary lives... You could ask Mary. He said, well, you know, Mary can tell you, David got what he deserved. You say, no, he's our pastor. He's a great guy. I'm a sinner. And Mary knows a lot of things. 
Like if I get mowed down by an earthquake, one of the things you can say is he got what he deserved because he's a sinner. So are you. Everybody on planet Earth, everybody, is not innocent. Like we all think we are. It's one of the great powerful ideas of modern culture today. We all think we're good people and we're flabbergasted. Can't be. People keep having plastic bags put over a young pastor's head that just got married because of a random robbery. It didn't make any difference to them at all. Instead, they put a plastic bag over a young pastor's head and he's dead. Now that's sick. Where does that come from? Our culture says, man, you know, he must have had a bad teacher when he was little. No. The Society of Arlington's all screwed up, man. It's Arlington's a mess. Let's not live in Arlington. Let's move out to Maypro where they're good. We need more education. We really need a really sharp psychologist to talk with those guys and figure out what happened. Where does that come from? The Bible teaches it comes because there's deep darkness inside of us, but there is someone that was never tainted with that chaos, with that crazy, irrational darkness. It was Jesus. He never sinned from the time he was born. He did incredible good works. He always powerfully communicated the truth. He always understood. When he was brought before a trumped-up court, he handles it with perfection. Doesn't lose his temper. Speaks the truth. And then they put him on a cross, and they kill him. That's the worst thing that could ever happen on planet Earth. Like the whole story of the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 through 3 until the first century when Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, the whole story pointed to the coming of this great anointed one that would finally be the Redeemer, and we kill him. It's the worst thing that ever happened. But what does God say about it? Look what it says. The early church understood how to go back to God's redemptive story in the Bible. It says, Sovereign Lord, you're the, you made heaven and earth and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit. So the early church, when they're faced with unanswerable questions, questions, what in the world is happening here? Why are, why are we being persecuted? Why are they trying to tell us not to tell others about Jesus? This doesn't make any sense. Why will some of our number face incredible persecution? What does the other church do? They allow the Holy Spirit to speak to them through their sacred scriptures. That's why I'm holding this book before you and challenging you to get to know it. The early church could pray Psalm 2. King David in Psalm 2 talked about the very kind of situation that they were facing. In fact, they're going to claim that King David, way back in his own lifetime, as people argued against him, and as political leaders like the Philistines tried to kill him, and then the Amalekites tried to kill him, and then all those in, Amman, in, in the area of Amman tried to kill him at Ramah, David constantly faced these enemies, and David throws up a hand and says, why in the world do people get together and try to wipe us out? One of the things that's building in the world again is the nations, it's building. Let's get the Jews. Let's get the Jews. It's very important for us to understand that the Jews aren't perfect. We need to be praying that they come to the Messiah. We need to be very wide in the way we're dealing with them. But you need to look at the world events because the nations rage against God's Jewish people. And that's what David was talking about. And the ultimate raging is when the rulers want to destroy the ultimate Jewish Messiah, whose name is Jesus. And that's what it says here. 
says, what are the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The king of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together. What's the source of all this political intrigue and political conspiring? And why do people keep trying to wipe out other nations? Because the whole world's history is the question, who's going to be the king of the mountain? It doesn't make any difference whether it's the United States. Like, as Americans, if you find out, like, oh, we're being threatened by China, and they're going to take over, what's going to happen? So it raises up in you. I'm going to be the king of the mountain. We're going to build better jets. We're going to be a better power thing. We're going to get those Chinese. The Chinese are thinking the same thing. We're going to get those Americans. We can beat them. They're lazy. They stink in math. we got a lot more engineers now. Man, we're going to beat them. Then India says, oh, you think you can do it? No, we're going to do it. You Chinese, man, we speak English, the language of the world. We answer all the American telephone calls. We're going to take over the world. The world is a cauldron. As a believer, you need to understand that. You young people need to understand, if you're going to be realistic about world events, people get together and they conspire how to get one another. Do you respond with pride and arrogance and fear and attack yourself? No. Because the ultimate battle is sinful, raging evil against the Lord's anointed. Psalm 2 is ultimately predicting, look what it says, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, that city of Jerusalem. They conspired against your holy servant whom you anointed. Herod and Pilate actually met. Pilate had Jesus. When he realized this is kind of a Jewish thing, Herod pretended to be this big Jewish king that the Jews never accepted, but he was half Jewish. He was Indomian, actually, and so he, he's got all this tumultuous thing. So Jesus actually comes and appears before Herod Antipas, and Jesus doesn't have a word to say to him. Pilate and Herod unite together and become friends. And the trial leads to Jesus. Pilate says he's innocent. He deserves to be set free. But instead he sets Barabbas free, an insurrectionist and a murderer, and he crucifies Jesus. All to please the religious leaders of his day. Now that's bad. If you were a follower of Jesus at that time, your whole world crashes in. And your world's going to crash in when earthquakes hit, or when loved ones become ill, when they don't get well, when accidents occur, we feel like it's all gone to hell in a handbasket. Terrible darkness. And the Bible is very honest about that. But Psalm 2 said that the Lord in the heavens laughs as all these people conspire against his anointed one. Why? Because it says here in the very next line, the early church understood they did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. And the Bible's very clear. Herod and Pilate did their thing. They were not pulled like puppet strings. The Bible doesn't teach determinism. It teaches something far beyond that. And what this passage does is say Herod and Pilate were very wicked people. Peter's already accused the Jewish leaders. You crucified the Son of God. You crucified the one that fulfills all your Old Testament prophecies. But he also offers them grace. He says, turn around. He's saying, because all of this happened, God allowed his son. Instead of his son coming to earth, looking at all the evil, seeing Herod, who cut off John the Baptist's head, seeing Pilate, who's just a Roman 
intrigue artists and pragmatists, Jewish high priests that are reveling in their religion, instead of God the Father says, just exterminate them. Just like we did in the flood, we're going to wipe everybody out. That's what you need to understand. In order to understand where we're living today, God could have said, that's it. In fact, when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is being tempted by the evil one, Jesus says, take this cup from me. If his father would have said, okay, then we're all lost. We're all gone. Because we're under a world, and the modern world doesn't buy this, but we're under a world that is incredibly dark and evil. And the evil's inside of your heart. The evil's inside of Dave Wurtzen. And God could have chosen to exterminate me, but instead, it says that God's purpose was for his son to die as the payment for our sin. That's what it's saying here. They did what your parent will had decided before and it should happen. Now the Lord consider their threats, enable your servants to speak the word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word boldly. What is this word that they spoke boldly? It's what we've been studying from the beginning of Acts chapter 1. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and Samaria and out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then we had the, the early church having to complete the 12th man. They've got to get a 12th guy that can be a witness to the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down and everyone's filled with the Holy Spirit just like this. The place is shaken. The wind blows fire comes upon him and the holy spirit what does the holy spirit enable them to do to speak in all the language of the jewish dispersion to tell them jesus died for your sins jesus was the payment for our sins jesus is the anointed one that some two talks about and he's now risen from the dead in Acts chapter 3, when they healed the crippled man, and everybody says, how did you heal the crippled man? They said, it's nothing that we did. It's in the power of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And we want to tell you about the crucifixion. We want to tell you about the resurrection. And the religious leader says, no, you can't do that anymore. They don't say, well, we want to be politically correct. This is Jerusalem, and, and we really don't, you know, there's lots of really great things in religion. We'll just keep our belief that Jesus rose again from the dead. We're just going to keep that to ourselves. You can't do that, my brothers and sisters, even if we suffer for it. My brothers and sisters in places like Egypt, in places like China, they're looking at us as Americans and say, you have so much freedom. What's the matter with you? Why are you so scared? Why are you so hesitant to tell others about Jesus? I'll never forget a few months ago, a Chinese brother came and met with us on Monday morning at our meal, at our men's meeting. And we were all joking and talking, ordering our eggs, and Mac always orders a pan two pancakes with an egg on top, and then he dumps syrup all over it. If you want to live to be deep in your 80s, eat two pancakes, put an egg on it, and dump syrup all over it. And all of a sudden, the Chinese, one of our Chinese brothers, it says, why don't you guys use the, why don't you guys just talking about the weather. Why are you guys just talking about everyday things? We got to get to the Word. We got to study God's Word because in His context, 
to be able to be with fellow brothers in Christ and be able to talk about Jesus, that was a precious, precious thing. And boy, what a reminder it is. We have such freedom, but we can take it for granted. So this morning, you say, Dave, what do we need to get out that the place was shaken, shaken in the spirit? I want the spirit to shake me. I want him to shake me, not in the sense that I'm able to do some incredibly ecstatic thing. He might do that. In the book of Acts, periodically, he does incredibly powerful things, and he heals people. And I believe that, that we'll see glimpses of the kingdom. But one thing I know for sure, the Holy Spirit wants to shake us this morning about boldly sharing with our friends about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. Who's the unbelieving friend that you have that the Lord's been speaking to you about boldly, not killing him with the gospel, not getting him off or her off your guilt thing, but you're so in love with Jesus, Jesus is changing your life, and the Lord's giving you a real burden. Man, I need to really share with my friend. They don't have a clue what I really believe, and I want to clear that up. I want to boldly share how I can know Jesus and how I trusted him. Let's pray. Peter and John, as we move through this book, they're going to keep telling people about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Even though they're imprisoned, as soon as they get out, they just keep right on telling others. We live in a, a land that's given us incredible freedom to share Christ. There's an earthquake that shakes in destruction. When the Holy Spirit shakes our life, instead of bringing destruction, it brings life that no tsunami, no debris that falls can ever snuff out. The reason we need to be bold is that we've met this incredible, one-of-a-kind Savior that can give us eternal life. Let's just pray as we close. Lord, awaken in our brothers and sisters and our family an incredible desire just to be with people to live with them, and to share Jesus. So, Lord, my prayer is that you would use the message today to shake us, to let the spirit within us to bubble forth with this incredible, wondrous good news that we've found a Savior that will one day rule the earth. He'll bring a kingdom where there will be no more tsunamis, no more earthquakes, No more bloodshed throughout the world. Instead, there will be a kingdom of righteousness where the lion can lay down with the lamb. By the power of your spirit, Lord, give me a vision of that kingdom. Give my brothers and sisters a vision of that kingdom. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would help us to move out this week and boldly and powerfully and skillfully, like the early church, Share this good news. Thank you that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.